Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we kick off the first 
in our 2017 miniseries of transgender movies with Stephen Elliott's 1994 film, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever dressed up in women's clothes and paraded around mouthing the words to other people's songs, then you're just the sort of gentleman who's ready for The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, let's climb up onto the roof of the Lavender Bus to check in with Games Master Stephen Smart, currently showing off his Silver LeMay outfit in the giant high heel, so we can find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was Wonderlust from 2012, directed by David Wayne and starring Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd. Congrats to this week's winner at Fegfee, who guessed it on Image 2. You're entered into the 2017 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later. We got a blot spot. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, is written in with his rebound on Coming to America. I'm with you guys that Coming to America is kind of weak. The plot is so predictable and not all that fun. I laughed a little more than you guys, I think, but it has never been a favorite. And of all these Eddie Murphy movies, this one feels the most dated. Your rank 274, my rank 178. Yep, yep, that's about it. I will say about Coming to America, I don't think we even brought it up last week, but... It, it and it's 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 an interesting point about coming to America. The fact that it is a film that essentially it's like a a black story. It's an African American cast. It's you know, but that's never the point of the story. That's never something that's in your face about. Hey, we are making a film about African Americans here and all this. It's just a story. And I think for a film that came out in 1988, that actually is a big strength of the film. Well, you know what? I to your point, it's it's not only is it a black story, you know, all the way through. It's a black story that demonstrates a very broad socioeconomic range. Right? You have extraordinary wealth, and you have extraordinary poverty, and you have Middle America, and all of them are represented in uh, black actors and black characters, and that has that is never a question. And so, yeah. um, you know, it, it gives us a chance to talk about it and the fact that the comedy doesn't hit is the thing we get to focus on, <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. And it's time. Uh, Let's do trailers. Uh, my film. <laughs> I don't even know how to... I don't even know where to start. It's called The Lure. It is a Polish film that was released in 2015. And I am talking about it now because it finally has a U.S. release date, nay, two years later. Uh, the lure is the story of a pair of mermaid sisters who are adopted into a cabaret. Uh, one of them seeks love with humans, and the other wants to dine on humans in the city. It is categorized as uh, a, 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 mer- a movie I've never actually seen, a mermaid horror musical comedy. Uh, and yes, there are song and dance numbers in it. Uh, I will say the makeup is not great. The teeth are clearly prosthetic. The uh, I, the the tails look pretty good, and the little bits of tail that we've seen uh, that we see in the trailer. And um, wow, it's it, it's pretty. Uh, it, I don't know if it, how gory it's gonna be, but it is definitely gonna be weird. Stripper mermaids. Uh, that eat other people. I've never seen mermaids like this. So, uh, in the spirit of Splash, Andy, uh, what did you think of Agnieszka Smosnika's, uh, uh, director Agnieszka Smosnika's entree into the mermaid genre? 
I think it looks just crazy. It looks like such a strange film. I mean, you're right. The the mermaids have this look where it's almost like this, like an eel or catfish sort of look. There's something weird about the way that the body of the the fish part um, works. Uh, I I don't know. It's very fascinating. Um, I I don't really know what to say about it, but you're right. This looks just so um, just almost. Uh, absurd. It just has this strange sense of almost like a, a fairy tale. Like it, you know, it just is like some strange story that somebody pulled out of some old text. But <laughs> but something about it just draws me in. I mean, I love the. I actually love the look, the teeth, everything. It just it has this crazy uh, sensibility, and I think it all. Um, I mean. It lures me in, Pete. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I, I love the I love the use of song. I think it's a it, it's a really funny little mashup, and so uh, not one for all tastes. Again, director Agnieszka Smoczniska and uh, written by Robert Bolesto. They have worked together in the past, but this is uh, I I think it's one of their it, it is their big feature debut. Uh, so it was released in. 2015, December 2015 in Poland. It did hit Sundance in 2016 when it uh, kicked off its uh, international uh, festival circuit. It did uh, most recently hit AFI Fest in the USA November 2016. We get a limited release February 1st, 2017. So your best chance to see it is coming up in February. It looks weird enough that I think you're going to want to check it out. At least check out the trailer. It is straight up bananas. What's yours? Well, mine is another film that's uh, been taking a while to get out there. It is the the horror film Raw, which uh, it hasn't taken quite as long. But, I mean, it played first at uh, Cannes last May. And then it's really had just kind of a very um, uh, big festival play. And it's still in the festival play right now. I think it's going to be playing Sundance soon and then the Gothenburg uh, Film Festival end of uh end of January. But I mean, I had a friend who saw this at Fantastic Fest last September and totally loved it. It uh, Raw is uh, a film, uh, reading it from the Fantastic Fest website, um, they say uh, it's it's directed, written and directed by Julia Ducournau. Uh, it's her first film, and it focuses on Julia, a shy young vegan heading to her first year of veterinary, veterinarian school. Julia's school just happens to love hazing, and after an all-night party, Julia is forced to eat animal for the first time, specifically rabbit kidney. <laughs> ah, hazing. <laughs> like all good coming-of-age horror films, this sparks change in Julia. First it's a terrible rash, and then later it's, well, you'll just have to see it to find out. <laughs> um, but yes, it's it's kind of a, a strange coming-of-age uh, cannibalism horror film is kind of my uh, impression of it. The trailer is just wacky. Uh, again, just uh, it maybe not quite as wacky as yours, but I mean, it's it's it just looks dark and twisted and and crazy, and there's a lot of interesting imagery. Um, I, I, I've heard just nothing but really great things about this uh, creep fest, and you know, I kind of can't wait to see it. It just—it's one of those that uh, has really piqued my curiosity. What did you think? Well, I think we're on our way to having a series of French cannibal films. Uh, we've got Delicatessen under our belt, and, and maybe we'll have to add raw to it. It, it This looks, uh, this is like the gross-out stuff that I don't like, that I, I haven't quite uh, developed a, a taste for in my explorations of horror. Uh, so it, it weirded me out to the point where I was, uh, I pretty much wrote it off. I'll need you to see it, and once again, 
uh, express your enthusiasm to me in such a way that that you may entice me to see it because I'm not. I'm, she looks great though, and the fact that this is hazing at a veterinary school, which is about the last place I would ever expect to see hazing, and that it's carnivorous hazing, which I've never even heard of, uh, makes it a, a a compelling story if you're into such a thing. That's my take. Trailer's gorgeous. I, yeah, well, and, I, and the trailer is a pretty intense trailer. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of fast cutting. They don't give you a lot of the story. You just kind of get this sense of this change going through this girl. Um, but yeah, there's really no story going on in the trailer. Um, Which is, I think, intense. one of its great, great, great strengths, you know? I mean, it's just, it's a yeah, beautiful sure. sort of wash of color, and it's sexy, and it's gross, and... Uh, I and because it doesn't give you any story, and there's no way you could put your finger on what is going on in this in this in the movie by watching the trailer. I think it really succeeds. Anyway, yeah, Raw is going to open March 10th uh, this year, finally after its big festival run, and then it'll be playing in France March 15th, Spain March 17th, UK April 7th. That's it for its release release dates at this point. Andy, don't darling me, darling. Look at you. You've got a face like a cat's arse. They're ready for stardom. They're ready for fame. They're ready for their close-up. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. This is the story of three hard-working guys. What kind of cabaret do you do? We dress up in women's clothes and parade around mouthing the words to other people's songs. Who are about to discover... Ta-da! Being asked to do a show out of town? How long is the run? Four weeks. That hitting the road is hard. I hereby christen this budget Barbie Camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Especially in heels. Uh, Andy, we are talking, I don't know if you saw this movie, we're talking about Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Stephen Elliott's film from uh, 1994. Oh, yes. Have you seen this? Have you seen this one? Uh- I have seen it. <laughs> Written, directed by Stephanie Elliott, stars uh, the big three, Hugo Weaving, Guy Pierce, and Terrence Stamp, uh, as uh, as our leads uh, traipsing across the desert uh, for a show. They need to perform a show across the deserts of Australia. And uh, I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen this film, 1994. I mean, I think I saw it pretty much when it came out, and I'm not sure I've seen it since. Uh, and, really? Uh, yeah, really. How did it hit you? I assume you've seen it more. Yeah, I actually I saw this. You know, we had that uh, those two different film uh, screening programs on campus in college, and one was kind of more uh, present day, uh, or I shouldn't say present day, but just kind of all the the Hollywood sorts of things, and then the other one was more all the art films. Mm-hmm. And I saw this on the the art film track, and uh, just totally fell in love with it. I mean, it's just so much fun, such great music. I mean, it was just a blast to watch. Um, I did end up having this one on Laserdisc, so I, I did see this quite a number of times, and I ha- just always had a great time watching this one. And um, I, but yeah, I since I got rid of all my Laserdiscs, I hadn't seen this one in in quite a while. <laughs> Wait a minute, you got rid but of your was... Laserdisc? That's the news of this show. What? When did that happen? <laughs> Uh, it's it's old news if it is news. <laughs> it's been oh quite a man! All right. Anyway, what? Yeah. But Something yeah, about I hadn't this seen movie. It. <laughs> I hadn't seen it in quite a long time, so it was uh, it was really fun to get back into it and just uh, just relive the moment uh, with uh, Mitzi, Felicia, and Bernadette. You know, I remember this movie as being much lighter than it is. Uh, it it is you know on its surface it's a road trip movie and 
Uh, it it's about a uh, you know it's a about a, a drag show and uh, it's it's funny it's it's got a lot of funny stuff in it uh, and the characters themselves are hysterically funny uh, but what I didn't remember I think you're you know when your memory just sort of latches onto something and that's what gets manufactured every time you think about it uh, what I ended up thinking of this movie was that it was just much more of a ribald comedy straight through but there are enough heavy, uh, you know, heavy sequences in this film and heavy sort of transformations in this film uh, that I, I think has it punching far above its weight. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got, I mean, right out of the gate, you've got, you know, the funeral of a character. It, ta- it deals with, you know, the, talking about AIDS, uh, transgender, uh, life as a homosexual in the 90s, at least in Australia, parenthood. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, just just racism and and hatred of others and and a lot of things going on here that I always find just so interesting that it was all kind of happening in this film in the 90s. Um, and I, I think it handles it all really well. I think it, they created some really interesting characters that are able to carry all of that through in a way where it still is essentially a kind of a light road trip comedy, but it 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 ends up getting allowed to deal with some of this bigger stuff. It does so in an ironically constrained space because so much of this stuff takes place in the bus or in the space immediately around the bus. It is with exception that we explore the broader desert besides driving across it. This feels like a much more intimate film than maybe it deserves to be uh, just because of the way these characters interact and uh, how naturally they behave with one another, whether they're just ribbing each other, or insulting each other or loving each other. It's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a very intimate film and uh, the performance I think just set it above, uh, you know what it what it needed to be certainly to to make tell the story and and uh, you know I think gosh it's been almost as long it feels like since I saw uh, To Wong Fu right that was kind of the U S spinoff of this wasn't it it wasn't really a spinoff I mean they both weirdly happened to be kind of in development at the same time this one came out in theaters before To Wong Fu mm-hmm. did. Um, and, and they, just, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, people are like, gosh, it's weird. It's two drag queen road trip movies, uh, like uh. back to back, but, but it was just one of those things where they just happened to be developed at the same time. Now, I don't, I think they became aware of each other, but neither of them, uh, they, I think my understanding is they kind of looked at each other's scripts and were like, oh, we're different enough. And yeah, yeah. they didn't feel like the other was, was ripping them off or anything. Well, I, and I think watching this again, that's that certainly cemented in my memory. I mean, it's it's not what I remember again. It, it is much more abstract. I mean, there are these longer sequences of, of just dealing with kind of uh, the interpersonal kind of transformational issues um, that uh, that aren't funny. Uh, that are visually stunning um, and much less road movie than I would have expected. Uh, what I one of the elements that I think is really powerful is the use of flashbacks in in the narrative. The way they use flashbacks to tell the story of stories of these kids is possibly the best use of flashbacks I think I've ever seen. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it, it was is, really interesting. Yeah. It is really fast, right? It's really fast. You get these incredibly short sequences, and they happen in the middle of a character's sentence. I'm thinking specifically of of Adams uh, telling the story of his uncle, uh, and and you think this is going to be a a really horrible story, right? He's telling the story of his youth, and we flash back, and his uncle's in a bathtub, and he says, "Hey, come here." And we're going to do something, and you're not going to tell anybody ever, 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 ever. 
and uh, I, w- I want you to reach down under the bubbles here, and I want you to I want you to pull. And then we see Adam reach under the water, and what he does is he pulls the the drain, and it completely offsets this the this sequence that you expect to be of horrific familial abuse, right? Child abuse, and it ends up. Uh, co- absolutely inverting it and turning it into a sequence of of great humor and the film does that in a in i don't know under a minute probably 45 seconds they do this sequence uh it's brilliant it's brilliant and i feel like they do that for each character in some way shape or form yeah they all get a little moment including bob which was nice it's it's interesting you don't often see uh flashbacks from so many different points of view in a film right and that was something that was a note i had is how interesting it was that they had these flat flashbacks to kind of give you a sense of the characters in a different capacity um you know whether it's mitzi and her her uh the fact that she has a uh well had a wife and child uh, like you said, Felicia's story already, Bernadette's, you know, little Christmas swap, and then Bob and how he met uh, his uh, his wife. Uh, right. So it's kind of an inter- interesting little bit to kind of give an extra little nugget of information for these people and kind of where they're coming from and, and, and kind of the setup for the characters. And I really like that sense of storytelling. It's, it's kind of a risky thing to do. And somehow I think Stephen Elliott, in writing this script, found the way to do it that worked really well. As two straight white guys, uh, let's talk then about how the film handles gay drag queens versus transgender transgenders in the film, the, the transgendered character. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think what's what's great, I mean, I you know, regardless, I think they're all going to be very big, gregarious characters. I mean, if you've ever watched RuPaul's Drag Race or you have any sense of drag queens, uh, they're very big characters anyway. And so uh, being the fact that there's a transgender character played by Terrence Stamp in the film who happens to also be a drag queen, um, I think it's a little less of a definition between uh, him and the other two or her, I should say, and the other two because they're all uh, in this show and they all have that same type of personality. Um, It's, you know, very different from the character in Transparent, for example. Right. But, um, but But I think that the way that the characters are written and handled, I, I think it's very clear through the whole film how Terrence Stamp is uh, is handling his character, and he just he does always come across as a as a woman, right? I mean, I, I feel like that's the the directing choice, the acting choice, the the writing choice. Everything about it just feels like like he's made that transition. And I think that it plays perfectly, and he still can can hold his own, hold her own uh, with the drag queens, but uh, very much is now Bernadette. It it's funny watching how these characters sort of play parts, right? And and I think what you're describing is is the the sense I got is just how is the part that he's playing is not the same part that they are playing, right? In particular, um, you know, Guy Pierce, who is the uh, I don't know if opposite is the right word, but he's certainly at the other end of a spectrum uh, from Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp, his, I totally agree with you. He just lands in this this uh, mature woman identity for me. Like I believed him the entire his performance, uh, the entire film. Absolutely, yeah. And 
the part that that she was putting on uh, was the part of the drag queen in the film. So that was her sort of performing. And what we get with the others, uh, with the other two, in particular Guy Pierce, is that he puts on the flamboyant part, but you watch him sort of um, uh, sort of move between identities a little bit more fluidly. It's like he hadn't either hadn't landed yet, or he was he was just in a just in a different space. And I I feel ill-equipped to talk about it because I I you know I I just don't have the experience. But uh, uh, but I, I found it really interesting to watch those two in particular opposite one another as an exercise in you know who's wearing uh, sort of what hat. Uh, in any particular scene. Well, and I think the strength of the story is even if you've never had experience with drag queens or transgenders, I I think that these characters are well enough written where you can understand what's going on and you can understand these characters and the journeys that they're going through and the, the lives they lead. And even though, um, you know, I, I mean, I haven't really had that much experience either with, with either, but I I still get a solid understanding of how all of this is working in context of the story and how I mean when you see uh, when you see Bernadette getting her breakfast as they're sitting out in the outback uh, by the bus and her bowl is a bunch of hormone pills you know you get this you get an, a sense of understanding of kind of her life and and what she's uh, just everything that she's doing and how things are for her as opposed to the other two which uh, you know have the the great drag outfits and everything um, and are very much gay but they they come at everything from a very different perspective um, just being uh, men attracted to men as opposed to a a woman trapped in a man's body uh, who wants to be a woman who is also attracted to men you know it's it's an interesting yeah pairing but I, I but i still get a good sense of these characters and even though i'll never fully understand their perspective of things um i am able to step into their characters here in the film and get a sense of their relationship and how they're moving through things well and that's the that's the ultimate question for me because i agree with everything you just said this is one of those films and this series i think is is a sort of a big part of it where i feel the least equipped to be able to say that was a believable performance, right? It was an enjoyable performance. I absolutely adore these characters, but my worldview is such that I just don't have the experience to say whether or not that's relatable um, and and realistic. And um, so I, I absolutely ad- adored this film, and I love what it represents. And my understanding is it was well-received, uh, certainly by the uh, LGBTQ community, um, and, and so, you know, I sort of take that at, at face value. Yeah. I think that's, uh, the sign that it, that it, um, was accepted is that it, it was well received. Um, you know, the LGBTQ community did, uh, did enjoy the positive portrayal of their characters. Um, they felt it kind of helped introduce them to a mainstream audience. And I mean, it was a big hit. And so I think <laughs> to that end, it did help. And the, and the fact that this film did I- I engender uh, great controversy, and none of it was about the transgender or uh, drag performances. <laughs> I thought that was, that you know, if you're going to have controversy, you don't want it to be out, out about the central theme of the film. And on that, we, we say A+. 
Absolutely. Although, speaking to that controversy, I mean, you know, it is one of those moments where, I mean, it makes me wonder when Stefan was writing this script, what kind of uh, made him feel that when he was writing the character of Cynthia, uh, why did she have to be this kind of uh, uh, this Filipino? I mean, there was a a Melba Margeson of the Center for Filipino Concerns. Uh, She stated, uh, quote, that Cynthia was portrayed as a gold digger, a prostitute, an entertainer whose expertise is popping out ping pong balls from her sex organ, a manic depressive, loud and vulgar, the worst stereotype of the Filipina. And it really comes across that way in the film. It's pretty horrible. And it's oh, it's the part of the film that just always pains me to watch. And it just it makes me wonder. Um, what was it in this in this film that really was kind of celebrating diversity that made Stephen or Stefan feel that this was the way to write that character? Yeah, I, I question that too. I, although, just in terms of a devil's advocate position, and and not saying that 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 part is in any way sort of justified, but rationalized perhaps that uh, this film is about misfits. Right? They're all they're all dealing with just these significant issues, whether it's issues of their history coming to terms with the the metaphor metamorphosis of of what it is that they have become, uh, they're dealing with their place in the world, both physical and emotional, uh, psychological. Uh, they're dealing with this crazy, uh, you know, journey where they're ending up in places they did not expect, and uh, to you know to have this character. Uh, that was clearly already a mess in the Bob's flashback, um, who was betting on uh, another experience, trying to get out of a, a negative experience of her, of her own, uh, and clearly being sort of emotionally disturbed um, in in the process. I think it, it at least it it for me it it says, hey, look, you can find people who are struggling with with their place anywhere. You can find them in the smallest towns. You can find them in the largest um, sort of metropolises. Um, and so, you, you know, I'm trying to pair her with the the story at large. Now, the counter to my own point is that character is woefully underdeveloped for what it's trying what it's trying to do in my own head. Right? It is an right, underdeveloped yeah, yeah. character and does not merit the weight in screen time to develop it as such. And so what we're left with is this distilled insulting um, you know stereotype of this uh, Filipina, you know, emotionally disturbed stripper who does just crazy things on a on a bar. Uh, it's like the worst version of Coyote Ugly, which was already not great, <laughs> you know. And so it isn't. I totally get it. I totally get it. it's insulting, but I also s- sort of see, you know, um, where Stefan might have been coming from. Yeah, and I mean, one of the producers said essentially what the same thing you said, uh, but. I, I can see that, yes, that may be the direction that they had been aiming for, but you're right. Without a, a better developed character, it just ends up feeling just like a terribly written stereotype. Uh, you, you've got a list of road trip tropes. Uh, this is a road movie, right, in the greatest sense. Uh, does it hit everything? 
Well, you know, and my list is is awfully short, but I mean, you think about road trip movies, and we've talked about a couple of them on the show, uh, like Vacation comes to mind. Uh, and there are certain tropes that that you feel like they always are trying to check off. You know, the different strangers that they meet, whether they're going to be the nice strangers or the mean strangers. Um, this one has that cute Beatles-ish uh, crosswalk moment, like uh, Abbey Road, uh, where they're kind of walking across this crosswalk. And it just it, it looks like that shot. And I've seen that in other films, too. Um, you have to, of course, always have the vehicle breaking down. I mean, inevitably, on a road trip movie, the vehicle breaks down. It has and to break. And somebody, sometimes multiple times. Right. And, and then you get somebody who's involved somehow in fixing the vehicle. Um, inevitably, you take a detour. You don't take the straight path. There's always a detour. And this one, they take the shortcut, which ends up not really being a shortcut. Uh, inevitably, the characters get into a big fight at some point. Um, and you always have somebody tag along at some point. So, um, And then I wrote down this one isn't really a, a road trip trope, but it does seem to be a trope when you have two people from different worlds kind of collide and they're trying to outdo each other in some way. You'll end up with something like the drinking competition that we have with uh, mm-hmm. Bernadette and Shirley in the bar. So uh, it's, yeah, lots of tropes in this film, but it's kind of the nature of this type of film and this type of story. And I think they check all the boxes off pretty nicely. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I did add one, the rite of passage, right, where the, the road becomes a, a metaphor for a, a, you know, greater transformation in the character. And I think when you look at Hugo Weaving and his experience of trying to come to terms with what he does by, you know, learning to talk to his son, uh, I, I think is a is a great sort of experience that he collects on the road and gets to resolve, which is lucky. With what a great kid. My God. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, it's it's written to be a really great kid, like the perfect kid for him yeah, to end up having to raise. Kid. Yeah, almost um, too perfect. But it is really nice. And it just, it, you get to the outback after going through some, some uh, or you get to Alice Springs after going through the outback and, and coming uh, through some pretty hairy uh, situations where they're definitely not welcomed and it definitely feels like you know they are in uh, just a dark territory here and you get all the way out to the middle in Alice Springs and you're you're kind of wondering is this going to be as bad as everywhere else along the way or is this going to be kind of this little safe haven in the middle of it for them and the fact that he ends up finding this uh this long lost son of his that is very accepting is i mean it's very touching and powerful and i think the fact that the son is so touching or so so um welcoming it really helps uh, uh mitzi's journey mitzi slash tick has to kind of grow to accept I can be a parent and it's okay to talk to my kid about all this stuff, um, even though I'm uncomfortable about it, while at the same time he's weirdly almost too comfortable. You know, it's it's this great kind of moment for him as he's trying to struggle through this stuff that it almost seems like he's his own worst enemy. Well, and it ends up also being a, an interesting metaphor for family, too. I mean, when you see the way uh, Felicia, um, you know, takes to the kid uh, it, it's a very special sort of relationship. They it, you, mostly because of the way Guy Pierce portrays Felicia, the way Felicia was written. It, it's a terribly immature character, right? It's a child in a grown-up's, uh, you know, Ken doll oh, body, absolutely. and and so they were able to connect in a really interesting and special way. And you kind of see uh, Mitzi kind of responding accordingly, right? That that they're on a journey together, and I think that ends up being a really special uh, uh, special relationship. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think of Stefan uh, Elliott as a 
director. Uh, you know, it's hard to say um, in a bigger sense of Stephen Elliott as a director because I've only seen this and he's done very little. Um, his He had one film before this, Frauds, which is kind of what helped him get the uh, enough notoriety to make this. And then after this, he had Welcome to Whoop Whoop, which I had heard about but never saw. Eye of the Beholder, which I, I heard about and also never saw. And then uh, Easy Virtue, A Few Best Men, and then he had a, a bit in the Rio I Love You, uh, Rio I Love You uh, compilation film. Not a whole lot of stuff. And he had a huge gap in his career from 99 to 2008 where he essentially retired. I'm not sure if it was just kind of creatively tired or what, but he retired and went to live in the Alps or something. And then he got a huge ski accident where he broke tons of bones in his body. And while he was uh, healing, he ended up um, starting to write again, and that kind of drew him back into film. And he's been doing that, and he's also been dealing with, the, at the same time he was writing the book for the uh, the stage adaptation of this. But, you know, I haven't seen anything else of his, and um, so this is really it. And based on this, I think it seems like he has a good sense of of comedy timing and of character. I think it's going to always be something that people will talk about and know about. I don't know if it'll go down as like uh, some like it hot or something though. They, can I, I, I do have a, a problem with the, the drag shows though. Don't the way they're f- shot? The way yeah. he directs them? Yeah, the way he directs them. I, I don't know how intentional this was, but uh, it, it, they, they slow the film down for me. Uh, the the pieces of the film that are most entertaining are when they're in drag and they're in the desert. But the big centerpiece moments, and, and particularly the one we are working toward, right, the biggest one, which is at the casino in Alice Springs, is one of the slowest sort of, I don't know, uh, anemic kind of, of drag show that uh, doesn't live up to, the, to, to what I would expect, right? And I, you know, I don't come from a, a background of seeing a lot of drag shows. I've seen several. Uh, we, in fact, in Oregon had, uh, I think she's passed away, Darcel, uh, Darcel the 15th, uh, who is actually in the Guinness Book of World, of World Records as the oldest performing drag queen. That show is bonkers. It is bonkers. It is just. It is just so energetic and over the top and and uh, th- just thrilling. It is just thrilling character, and it feels like these guys are at their very best in this film when they're not on stage. As soon as they're on stage, it, the whole thing slows to a stop. Uh, the way it's shot feels like it is. It it's uh, uh, it's just very staid and reserved. Uh, reserved is the word I'm looking for. Do you not? Do you not? You don't share it. I, I don't think that. I mean, I think there's enough interesting stuff going on with the costumes and just the, the design of everything that I uh, find it very fun and energetic to watch. Uh, if anything, and it's weird that you, you brought up the, the, uh, the drag shows themselves. Um, if anything, I always feel like when I'm watching the drag shows... Um, that these three may not actually be like the best dancers. And I don't know if that's the actors who just struggled with kind of getting the dances down in the first place, 
or if that was an intentional thing and these characters themselves were not supposed to be the greatest dancers, or if that's part of the act and their dancing is always just slightly off. But there are times when they're dancing and it just it just feels like there's some some awkwardness or maybe tiredness with their performances, you know? And, and it's funny um, to, to think about that and like wonder what the reason for that might be. But that's yeah. what I notice with the dancing. Uh, but see, I, you know these drag shows i don't think they're well known for having the best dancing right i mean they're having well, the, it, it's <laughs> the best even uh, the real ones not just the the what's portrayed in the movie right it it's not something you're not going to see the rockettes right there who you're just known for precision step work right <laughs> this is this is not that show um but what you do get is is a sense of exuberance and what i would have expected because i feel like there is such a sense of exuberance in the way sequences are handled on the bus and around the bus and above the bus. And, you know, one of the most exuberant set pieces is when Felicia is on top of the bus in the silver outfit with the long trail, right? That That's an enormously exuberant bit of visual filmmaking. I love it. I love the way it cuts in from the, the with the music and it's close up on her face and then it's a medium shot and then finally we have the full wide shot of the bus. Uh, it, it's a great comic moment. It's a great visual moment. It just works in every way. And as soon as we get to the, to the shows, it's like, man, the brakes get put on and, and it's, uh, it, it never quite recovers for me. I'm not sure what that's about. Well, it could also be just the, the the pacing. I mean, perhaps some of them might have uh, been a little better if they truncated them a little bit. I do feel that way in a couple of them where I'm like, I, I'm enjoying it, but I feel like I've seen everything I need to see. We could probably cut out, uh, you know, a chunk of this and I'd be fine. Um, and that could be, uh, you know, but I don't know. I guess I don't have as much a problem as you do with the dancing. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like a pacing issue. And I'm uh, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll live to regret that comment. Anything else we have to say about uh, the direction uh, of the good Stephen Elliott? No, I mean I think that he handles it well. Um, you know, I don't think he really. Um, I, I I'm curious to see if he'll find his his uh, footing again and get back into making some films that uh, that really uh, strike a chord with people. But obviously, he did writing the musical uh, version of this because that's been quite a success. Mm-hmm. You want to do first shot or last shot? I'll take first shot. All right. So we start uh, behind the stage curtain with Mitzi's silhouette as she's about to go on. The music starts. We've got I've Never Been to Me. And uh, then the curtains open and Mitzi goes on to perform her show. And the last shot uh, is the performance of Mamma Mia that we've uh, we sort of been hearing about it's a, a performance mamma mia mitzi uh, standing over the crowd uh saying that it's good to be home and um uh and and then we get a, a one of those great beverly hills cop eddie murphy freeze frames on uh, her ridiculous ridiculous smile and fantastic <laughs> face of hugo weaving you know, it's uh, it's great. It's all show related, and you know, we're kind of beginning and ending with uh, with the shows. Um, I, you know, for me, it kind of hinges on the songs. I think that they chose to start and end the film with. We've got "I've Never Been to Me," which is an interesting uh, you know, way to describe. Perhaps this is Mitzi. Um, she's going to be going on a search to find herself, right? Yeah. And then at the end of "Mamma Mia," "Never Let Me Go." 
uh, you know, my, my, I can't even remember the words, but uh, just how much I love you and all this stuff. It just feels much more like fun and familial and like now everything's come together and we're happy. The first one is just a solo number and it just has that sense of kind of tragedy. And so I think those two tunes give a good sense of kind of the, the way the story's going to unfold. So that's my sense of them. I, um, I, I actually... For me, the the last shot is, you know, it is the last shot of the film, but it's the closing credits that actually makes the better pairing. The final song in the closing credits after the the freeze frame is uh, "Save the Best for Last" by uh, performed by Vanessa Williams, and it's performed in silhouette. And the closing credits are incredibly compelling, right? Uh, first of all, you're watching the the screen because of this. Uh, the performance of this song and the lighting is just right on, uh, and and it gets you to read the credits, which end up being sort of funny in themselves. Um, but I think it actually mean, makes a, a nice uh, sort of metaphorical pair between the first shot. Is it, but you have to get all the way past the last shot to the credits in order to in order to get there. Yeah, it's it's always tricky, and I've been torn with this about what's the last shot when you have a situation like this pop up in a film where the movie ends. You've got the last shot, but then you have something pop up during the credits that's kind of another last shot. You know, it's, I don't know, it's kind of tricky. And I guess you could kind of look at it either way. I, I still kind of prefer the shot with uh, with uh, uh, Mitzi at the end of uh, the Mamma Mia bit. Um, it's a totally different performer doing the Save the Best for Last bit at the end. It's actually one of the uh, costume designers, Tim Chappelle, yeah. who is uh, doing that uh so for me, it's like, I, I don't know, I guess I prefer the first uh, version that I talked about, but I can see it working either way. Uh, let's start running through the cast, our favorites, shall we? Yeah, casting was done by, well, I, this is the strangest casting, done by Broken Hill, who is credited as Bobby Pickup, and ver- <laughs> very few credits. <laughs> so I think this and then some other Australian film in like the 80s and then, uh, you know, assistant on something. Uh, we've got, we, we start out, we've already mentioned Terrence Stamp as Bernadette Basinger. What I love about this uh, is, you know, we've got these three actors and they've all played comic book movie villains. You've got Terrence Stamp, <laughs> who is Zod way back in Superman 2, before it was cool to be <laughs> right a comic book villain. And then Hugo Weaving was Red Skull in uh, Captain America. And uh, and then Guy, Guy Pierce was Aldrich uh, Killian. Yeah, in, Iron Man uh, 3. Iron Man 3, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Very funny. Very yeah. funny. But yeah, Terrence Stamp, uh, I mean, he had been a, an actor in films, I mean, like Superman 2 and just other things. And it just like this was not the sort of film where you expected to see Terrence Stamp pop up. Um, but he did such a great job in this. I really was compelled by him, the way that he performed the character. It was just really touching. Um, I guess that... The way that the Australian uh, uh, the film uh, commission works when they're helping fund a film, you can only have one non-Australian actor appear appear in the film. And um, initially, they had talked about it being David Bowie, and then they thought maybe John Hurt, but neither of them were available. And then um, then they actually talked to Tony Curtis about uh, being playing the part of Bernadette, and he was interested. Um, but something happened and he ended up not being available. Then they went to John Cleese and Tim Curry, and then finally to Terrence Stamp. And I will say the journey was well worth it because I think Terrence brings a lot to this film and is just an absolute joy 
um, as this character. Just so much heart, so much uh, um, sense of weight of life that I really enjoy in what uh, what he brings to the uh, the character. Uh, Roger Ebert had this great quote. At the beginning of the film, we're distracted by the unexpected side of Terrence Stamp in drag, but Stamp is able to bring a convincing humanity to the character, and eventually we, we realize that the real subject of the movie is not homosexuality, not drag queens, not showbiz, but simply the life of a middle-aged person trapped in a job that has become tiresome. I, I don't agree with Roger Ebert that the film is specifically about Terrence Stamp, but I do agree that this is really what Terrence Stamp's character is about, and I enjoy this aspect of the character. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that, and I think it's that weight and sophistication, frankly, that Stamp brings to the to the character that I I you know I think about a Tim Curry, who, and I think Tim Curry is a is a wonderfully talented uh, actor, but it it's hard to get you know his other the other big transgender role. Uh, of of um, Tim Curry's out of uh, out of your head and and there just is it doesn't bring with it that sort of gravitas that this is a human story uh, much more than it is a cartoon uh, story and I I totally agree with that but I'm I'm curious that I I'm also curious about your the statement that this is not uh, Terrence Stamp's uh, you know story right that this is not Bernadette's story uh, this this feels really uh, to me like much more of an ensemble piece than that. Uh, you know, I feel like the, it. This really focuses on Mitzi. I mean, it's, we start and end on Hugo Weaving. It's yeah. it's Mitzi's story. I I definitely feel that. That being said, um, I I think that that bringing Bernadette into the fold as one of the key characters is an integral part of it, and definitely they. You could almost say it's almost like the. Thelma and Louise of the film, um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I still feel like Mitzi's the one who really takes the emotional journey over the course of the story. So it's very easy to see that oh, it's Mitzi's story, and Bernadette has her own journey in the film. But the focus is really Mitzi's journey. Well, let's talk about Mitzi. Oh, Mitzi Delbra or uh, Anthony Tick Bellrose, played by Hugo Weaving. What a like. I know Hugo Weaving as just a diabolical face, right? From The Matrix and uh, as it, from the um, um, Hobbit films, the uh, Lord um, of the Rings, Lord of the Rings films. Um, but when you put that face, The Matrix and the Lord of the Rings films, in drag, you get a real sense for the the incredible physical uniqueness that this guy brings to these to this character like there are very few people i think who could pull off uh this role with this level of just straight up character he does it so well and he's one of those actors who i've seen this was my first experience watching hugo weaving um and i it's just like he his face just was burned into my head and he pops up in movies periodically that are just kind of these these smaller or or indie type of films and i always just think that he's just so incredibly compelling and such an interesting actor to watch and then he does these huge big blockbuster things and we didn't even talk about transformers the fact that he's megatron yeah you know, right, all these right crazy right, right. things that he's doing um but he I mean, he's just in in just huge huge projects but it's the little ones that he does that i'm always drawn to i mean he did another film called the interview that was just a really really powerful film a really interesting kind of a, a 
a crime thriller drama. Sure. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and he brings all of that to the table here. I, I think that his performance is big and over the top as, as you know, uh, Mitzi, the drag queen, needs to be. But at the same time, there's a lot of emotion there. There's a lot of heart. There's a lot of fear about this whole family life that he's afraid of. And at the end, when he's with the son, I mean, there's a lot of touching moments between the two of them. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think he brings a lot to the table. There's this wonderfully like sensitive moment where we, we reach that pivot for him, where he realizes who he is and who he finally allows himself to be with his son and it, it is it, it, it's such a gift of this film when you uh, you know when you've sort of gotten yourself acclimated to the flamboyance of these characters and then realize that underneath it all uh, it is such a well-architected character study and a well-deserved relief when he gets to be the guy on stage uh, and be the the sort of the the woman that's kind of lives in his head on stage, uh, in the eyes of his son. I I I found that incredibly touching uh, to to experience kind of along with him. Absolutely. Now, could you imagine Rupert Everett or Colin Firth in the role? Maybe uh, no, probably not. Actually, I could imagine Colin Firth uh, in the role of Bernadette. Frankly, I think he could have pulled that off uh, with a plum, but not certainly not as as Mitzi. Um, that would have been very strange. And Rupert Everett, what? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, they were both they were both the right age at the time. I mean, Colin Firth now, yes. Uh, back then, I mean, I, I think he would yeah, have been way right. too young. Yeah, you're right. But uh, but yeah, these two actors, I just don't know. I mean, Rupert Everett was, I guess, in, I guess cast is what it sounds like, um, along with Jason Donovan cast as Felicia when they were doing some initial pre-production meetings at Cannes. But I guess the two of them didn't get along very well and they were really hostile with the production staff. So they both got dropped. And uh, then Colin Firth said no. And then, uh, yeah, then they brought on Hugo. And again, this is like perfect person to play the role. It's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you think of Guy Pierce as Adam or Felicia Jolly Goodfellow? <laughs> you know, the best thing about drag queens are their names. Yeah. Just, oh yeah. Well they're just it's it's so such good. a joy. It really is. <laughs> we have um Barbara Seville here in town in Phoenix, which <laughs> oh, yes. I just love it. Uh, Guy Pierce is just fantastic. Again, this was my first experience watching Guy Pierce, and I guess he was brought on cast at the very at the eleventh hour, really, um, coming from the Australian soap um, Neighbors, which I've never seen or heard of, but that's uh, where they brought him in. And um, I think he carries the he's just the perfect person to play this character. And it's interesting watching this and then knowing that, you know, a few years later he'd be in uh, L.A. Confidential because, I mean, there's a big difference in those two characters. But there's also that kind of that that push and that drive in those two characters. And I think Guy Pierce has that in him. It was uh, this. I, I totally agree. I actually found Guy Pierce fantastically charismatic to watch, and I can totally see why he would land in something like *L.A. Confidential* and particularly *Memento*. Like uh, he's he's just so good uh, at at making the transformation. You know, when you see him go uh, both ways, when you see him take the drugs and and dress up and run out into you know the bar scene and and 
you know, get chased through the junkyard. You know, I thought that was a a really intense, wonderfully intense scene. Uh, Apparently this was supposed to be, uh, or this was cast with Jason Donovan, another character from, or another actor from Neighbors, uh, who is also a clean cut, um, you know, good looking guy. Um, You know, I don't know. I don't know what the story is, but what I do uh, see on Jason Donovan's IMDb page uh, is a picture of him with the young Kylie Minogue, uh, both in Neighbors together. And they look just like Luke and Laura from General Hospital when I was a kid. (laughs) I think they're still there, Luke and Laura. Just like Luke and Laura. So shout out, Luke and Laura. You know you watched it. Shut up, Andy. You know you were there. Come on. As the oh, world turns, you were probably as the world turns, is what you're saying. Uh, Young of the Restless. Oh, all right. Well, those are the big three. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Days of our lives. Big four. <laughs> oh, my God. My soap opera history is crashing around me. <laughs> oh, so Sands in the hourglass, Andrew. Anyway, oh, he was yes. great. He was great. Uh, and then we have Bill Hunter, who was so charming and so gentle and so unpredictably elegant in this film. Fantastic as Bob Spart. Bill Hunter is one of those actors that I just, I don't know if there is a film that I've seen that he's been in that I haven't loved him. I mean, whether he's just as despicable as he is in uh, Strictly Ballroom or as great as he is here. I mean, he was in this. He was, he was in Gallipoli. I mean, he popped up in Gallipoli. Yeah, we talked yeah, about a while right. Um, I mean, he actually, he was doing this and Muriel's Wedding at the exact same time uh, like the crazy actor that he was. Um, and I guess they were filming different parts of Australia. He had different lengths of hair, different beards and everything, but he was bouncing back and forth and constantly having to change everything. So very <laughs> funny. Um, I guess uh, Terrence Stamp suggested hiring him for Bob and Bill Hunter accepted the role without reading the script or being told anything about it other than a basic character description. He's just like, sign me up. And, you know, I mean, he's just so great. And, uh, you know, kids might know him as the dentist from Finding Nemo, but um, he's been in just, you know, 114 credits on IMDb. I'm so glad you said that. The dentist, Finding Nemo. (laughs) Totally recognize him. Uh, He he was great. And what this also demonstrates is when Terrence Stamp tells you to do something, you do it. (laughs) That's right. He actually, I hear he still wants people to call him Admiral. (laughs) (laughs) Where's that funky black sparkly suit? The one, the unit, unit, unisuit. <laughs> Cinematography by Brian J. Brahaney. Uh, th- I think this was a, a a great film. And when I saw the split diopter, Andy, I shouted "split diopter," and I was watching this with my daughter, and she was flummoxed. <laughs> it's right there. It's split diopter. <laughs> I know, isn't it great? I, I I think they used it a few times. It was so yeah. exciting to see that they actually felt like, hey, we're doing this comedy, but it doesn't have to just be a, a standard by-the-book comedy look. We can actually have fun with some of the framing, and we can do some interesting things, and and it just it, this was a joy to watch. I mean, I yeah. just find it such a visual feast, aside from the costumes and production design and everything else that went into it. I think that uh, that Stefan, along with uh, his cinematographer Brian, really worked to create a, a really fun, vibrant look for the film. Well, they did, but also just open themselves to taking advantage of what they were given. Right, that bus 
is has such a, a wonderful character on its own, and it's in the middle of this incredible landscape. And I think some of the the most wonderful sequences are when they take these out of context objects, like the drag queens in outfit, the bus driving across this beautiful uh, landscape, and they they put these things together and shoot them in such a, a, a fantastically dramatic, overly dramatic fashion uh, that that uh, is is what makes the feast. Um, and, and it makes it so wonderful to look at. I don't think they settled to be a comedy, right? They they took advantage of what they what they were working with to to create something that that stands up in so many more you know ways. Yeah, absolutely. The split diopter though did make me wonder. It's like I mean I loved seeing it, but I'm like, were they recently watching some some old '70s movies? So you know, Brian De Palma. What was it that that did that triggered them to go, hey, let's pull the split diopter out? Because I, you know, nobody uses that. It's such a fun tool. So oh, it's a I great tool. Uh, you do you think they pulled pushed it too far? Is that what you're saying? Too much? No, 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 no. It's just mm. it's it's a tool that people. It seems like people don't think of very often, and so I just wonder what it was that tri- that triggered them to go, hey, <laughs> let's put the split diopter in here have you ever actually uh consumed the vodka uh, or the gin and then filled the little bottle with water and then put it back in the fridge it seems like something you would do and that you would have learned that from Karen's stamp <laughs> thanks for that i guess um uh, no, and then I the little tea bags that, but... to make the to to make the what is it the rum or the the uh, whiskey the, the yeah i you know is an interesting uh, little nod and it did make me wonder if like this was kind of the start of putting the little um that little seal piece on the yeah on the lids so when you break the seal <laughs> then you can tell oh they've opened it they're paying for it even if it looks full <laughs> that's right that's so good uh but that you know to credit to uh, to the production design I, uh, it's it's beautiful it it looks really good, and they had a lot of a, a lot to do to dress that bus up as a essentially a rolling dressing room. Uh, I, I think it was it was really uh, good. But as you already mentioned, the the great uh, gift of this film is the costume design, uh, the general character design. Yeah, I mean, it really, I think they all tie together. The production design, uh, Owen Patterson, the hair and makeup, uh, Cassie Hanlon doing the hair artist and the in the key makeup artist. And the costumes by Lizzie Gardner and Tim Chappelle, all of those worked really well together to build this world. And I mean, you look at the shows that they put on and the just the design of all of that, everything going on with these characters in their world is just uh, sparkly craziness. And I think they did such a great job. But I mean, geez, these costumes, I mean, that last show they do in Alice Springs when they have the crazy emu heads on, the frilled lizards, you've got the Sydney Opera House. It's just like, these are nonsense. I love them. And then that, the wackadoo thong outfit that, uh, that we're going to, we're going to call that the the flip flop uh, outfit for our, listeners i think given the nature yeah. of this show the thong outfit could apply to it something sounds, that, that felicia it could be wore. totally different right it, it could yeah it really in the same flip-flops. scene <laughs> yeah, right. he did actually wear the thong outfit uh, indeed he did indeed indeed yeah it's it's really the flip-flop dress <laughs> which apparently only costs seven dollars to make so uh, you gotta love that uh, efficiency to 
build something like that. The thing I like the best is the emu outfit, right? The, with the giant heads of the birds on top of their own heads. It really looked like they were struggling to keep those upright as they were dancing right. around. So uh, that I thought was just a, it, it sort of was a chilling effect to the scene that I thought was really funny. That, that worked very well. Oh, so funny. I, it feels like the Lion King, the stage version, seems to pull a yeah. lot of its tricks from this, right? <laughs> Everything I, knew, I learned about uh, costume design on Broadway, I learned from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> uh, it's pretty good. Oh, man. So good. So good. Uh, where they, So they, they shot this thing uh, across Australia. Uh, word is they wanted to get to your favorite rock, but they couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Uluru, the big, uh, the big rock in the middle. They were that was originally where they were going to climb, and it makes sense when you hear uh, when you hear Bernadette say, "Oh, just what the world needs," or whatever it is, you know, a cock in a frock on a rock. Yeah, you know, it, it makes sense that they're talking about Uluru because it is this giant rock in the middle of Australia, but. It is a sacred site. It's very difficult. Uh, I mean, people still climb it all the time. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, so typical, uh, a disrespected sacred site, like so many that we have around the yeah. world. Um, but, uh, yeah, they couldn't get permission to actually film on it. So they ended up doing it at Kings Canyon. And I think it works nicely. It still gives you a nice visual sense of things. And, it, you know, Terrence Stamp has that uh, that great line at the top when they are looking out over it and how it just never ends. Um, but this does give a nice feature of the Australian outback and the tour through it and the little towns they stop in and everything. I, I really enjoyed just kind of the, the vibe of the road trip here. That final sequence is such a strange sequence to me, right? It's funny. It's so weird, right? They get all dressed up. And then they start climbing, and the climbing takes just a bit longer than it should. So by the time they actually get to the top, they're exhausted. They're visibly impacted. They're swatting the flies out of their face, right? And then they get to the top, and they don't do anything. They just look and exist in those fantastic costumes. Uh, you, I don't know what I expect. Every time I watch it, I think maybe then maybe they'll do a number here, and they never do. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, that would be interesting. It's, yeah. It is interesting because it's like, what was the goal other than to hike it in your outfit, right? Yeah, but yeah. Apparently, that was it. That was the goal. That was. The I just goal. every time I'm watching it, all I can think of is like God, that has to be the most brutal way to to hike something like that you know it's all that additional weight sticking off of you in all those different places it just seems like it's just an unbearably awkward way to go hiking. yeah god terrible uh anyhow they they made use of some other good local locations uh, uh broken hill new south wales and cooper Pedy, a real mining town in, in central australia that uh, uh did they did they use a bunch of locals or were they all locals or uh, i didn't read if it if they actually uh filmed with locals or not i was just surprised that they actually filmed in some of the actual places i mean cooper pd is a real uh rough and tumble mining town in central australia and uh and broken hill is also out in the outback and uh yeah they i guess they filmed i think that uh stefan said it, he felt like it was close to half of it filmed in and around broken hill so um it, he kind of has an affinity for that particular uh town but um yeah it just i don't know they they both had great vibes and it just really had a good sense of this is the outback cooper Petey is an, another one of those like the dish 
where you can jump onto your Maps app of choice, Google Maps, Apple Maps, whatever map you want to use, and you can jump in and look at this town, and it it looks exactly like it looks in this movie. Nay, twenty three years later, uh, it it's it's really funny. You can see where they were walking right down the sidewalk. Yeah, it probably hasn't changed that much. Yeah, has not has not <laughs> changed that much. Um, anyhow, uh, we're gonna talk post production uh, editing by Sue Blaney. The, uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I, I feel like, if anything, perhaps this might be where uh, you and I have some issues. Uh, it seems like perhaps the dance numbers could have been shortened down a little bit. Um, you know, just some, it sounds like you might think perhaps the hike needed to be shortened down a tiny bit. Um, it seems like that might be an area where it could have used some work. I don't really have huge issues with it. I think um, the dances were fine, although I do think perhaps... Because some some of the awkwardness in the dancing, we could have uh, tightened things up a little bit. But I, I think it's interesting that they actually already did some tightening based on some early reviews, um, some from some screenings, where uh, I think people might have felt that the 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 pedophilic uh, uncle was a little much, and they it sounds like they kind of pulled back on the way that Adam Adam's flashback was handled, which is interesting because you you point out how effective it is in the short amount of time that it is without without being uh, overwhelming or too dark. And perhaps that's what it was. It, it certainly could get dark, right? That sequence, that like one minute sequence to me, it, you know how they do all those like make your one minute feature film, right? These contests. That could have been right. one of those contests. Like it tells a complete story about this kid growing up and it does so in a way that could be incredibly dark, but it ends on on uh, humor and redemption. And I think it's I think it's great. I think it is a great addition to the film. I think it's really um, uh, it's funny. It's funny. He gets what what does he use? What's the word he uses? Ping pong? wing wang or wing wang yeah gets his wing wang stuck in the drain i i think it's funny (laughs) it is funny it is very funny but you could see how if it was longer it might have gotten too uncomfortable yes before the humor kind of kicked in agree with that totally agree with that as it is it's a perfect one minute movie i'll stand by (laughs) what do you think of all the songs in the movie oh you know uh i it's not it's generally not music that i um it, it's it's not music that i listen to a whole lot and yet in this movie i find myself just like it's a foot tapping film i really i really enjoy it i don't know that i could put it on and enjoy it the same way without the movie uh but boy i'm telling you every song all the way up to the very end uh, with vanessa williams i i was in it and i watched it with my daughter and she was too and she's 14 that says something for the era. I love it. I love the music. I love the songs. I um, I love the soundtrack. I bought the soundtrack. And I don't know what, what it <laughs> well, says about me, but... Totally telling. Man, I know. But it's. I just have so much fun listening to these songs. I mean, it's just... It's like this, this crazy, kitschy, uh, just wild, fun album. Just a, a, a crazy selection of kind of almost like these... these cult songs or something that yeah. is just so fun to listen to. I mean, there's just so much vibrance in life in all the songs. And even the score, Guy Gross did the score. It has a great comedy feel to it. Um, Bernadette's hike always strikes a chord with me. It just seems so big and dramatic and everything. Yeah. But for me, it really is about the songs. I mean, 
Stefan really wanted to make kind of a, a, a musical and and found, thought that this would be a really interesting way to tell kind of a modern musical. And I think it works really well. And I think finding these songs, I mean, much like Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that, where you find some some great songs that perhaps people weren't listening to so much at the time, but blended together, they create a really interesting soundtrack. And that's what happened here. And I think all of these songs are really fun. And the fact that you end up getting a didgeridoo kicking in when I Will Survive is uh, is playing, it just is, it ends up creating this whole new world. And I don't know, it's, it's, that, I can see why it went to Broadway. That was awesome. That sequence was fantastic <laughs> for a couple of reasons, not the least of which they got the uh, the uh, aborigine uh, the aboriginal uh, guy to stand in to and join in, right? <laughs> to join in and dress up. That was awesome. I did find myself thinking, what? How did they make that transition? Because they did it in the mid song, right? It was the magic of movies. So they're they're in the middle of the song, the three of them, and they see the guy standing over the corner, and he's clearly dancing and enjoying himself, and then. Like the next verse, like three seconds later, he is now in the in the act, right? And he's dressed in a big silver outfit and he's dancing and it's very funny. And it's really great. But I can't help but think about the, you know, what actually would have happened without the magic of cinema, you know. Stop, 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 stop. We've got an idea. You know, 45 minutes later, hair and makeup are done. He's in the outfit. And, right. Okay, then we're going to start up again. Is anybody still here? <laughs> I think that's so oh, funny. Oh, it's totally... It's but it's it, it and I think it that's was, some of the magic great. of this musical, right? Because they do the same thing during the the big Alice Springs number where they keep changing costumes, and it's like you know he you know uh, one of them falls behind the rock, and when when she crawls out, uh, it's now uh, uh, frilled lizard time, and it's it, they play with that quite a bit throughout this, and I think that those moments work well in context of the musical. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, I thought it was great. The the music is great in the music. Uh, in the music, the music and the music is awesome, Andy. And uh, and I, it, you know, I don't know if this. It, to me, it seems like this, along with Muriel's Wedding, because that also had huge ABBA soundtrack. But it seems like these two films paired together really kind of boosted kind of this resurgence of ABBA in the '90s. And maybe that's just me, but it seems like that. And that might be what kind of led to Mamma Mia and and just kind of that whole rebirth. And, I, you know, it just seems like this kind of is where it came from. And, and maybe I'm wrong in that, but that's my sense of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Do you have yeah. the, the collection, the ABBA collection as a result? Are you part of the resurgence? I've got like the greatest hits. Uh, you know, I, I, for me, I, I really enjoy certain ABBA songs. And there are some that, uh, you know, it's funny <laughs> talking about some of the dance numbers and stuff. I feel that way about how uh, some of ABBA's songs feel like they go on too long. It's like, I feel yes. like the song should have ended like two or three minutes ago. <laughs> so it's <laughs> the song. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh, this movie uh, cleaned up in uh, some, uh, this movie did pretty well in award season, yeah? It did pretty well in award season. I mean, it got nominated for nine Australian Film Institute awards. It only ended up winning two of them, but it was nominated for Best Film, Lost Muriel's Wedding, Best Direction, and Best Original Screenplay. Um, they lost to uh, Rolf Dahir uh, for both of those uh, for Bad Boy Bubby. Um, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Hugo Weaving and Terrence Stamp were both nominated. Lost to uh, Nicholas Hope, also in Bad Boy Bubby. Uh, that's a movie. I don't know. I just want to see it now. Basically, feels like you need to see that. Yeah, 
Uh, Best Cinematography lost to Nino Gaetano Martinetti for Exile. Best Original Music Score lost to Douglas Stephen Ray for uh, Traps. And then, of course, Best Production Design and Best Costume Design, they uh, won both of those. So, And then over here, stateside, it did win a uh, an Academy Award for Best Costume. And that's, of course, the famous moment when Lizzie Gardner uh, and Tim Chappelle went up on stage and Lizzie was wearing the outfit made out of gold Amex credit cards, which, uh, of course, um, uh, uh, gosh, who was the host? It was... Um, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Is the talk show host uh, David Letterman? David Letterman, yeah. He of course makes the big uh, joke about how you know Amex couldn't pay for that sort of publicity, which <laughs> probably is very true. <laughs> yeah, right. Deserved win, right? I mean, I, there wasn't anything that was that, that you think was better in that category. I would have picked you know? this. I mean, the other yeah. costumes. I mean, it was like Maverick. I don't have it in front of me. It was like Maverick and um. Uh, Little Women, and there was something else that had some really big uh, gregarious costumes that also I thought was pretty solid. But this, to me, is the one that I thought definitely deserved to win. And uh, in addition to the uh, the awards, it's it spurred a, a, a the very successful musical. He's he he was back. Uh, you mentioned it earlier in the show. Still going on. It is still going on. It premiered two thousand six, and it is still touring the globe, just making its way around the world. Didn't we just hear that Games Master Stephen Smart went to see it in Scotland? I don't remember. Did he? Wasn't that wasn't that something that he said to us? Uh, follow maybe. up. Follow remember. up. Stephen yeah. Smart, how was the musical? I think you've already told us this story. I think we need to hear it again. Indeed. Uh, anything else we need to talk about? I you you we made note of the the humor in the credits. Yeah, right. Uh, there's that point where in the credits as it's rolling, you get the this space available, your name here thing that pops up, which is kind of funny. What was that all about? There's got to be a story. I, I don't know. Just uh, so weird. I, I wasn't sure if it, my sense was it maybe it was a timing thing and they'd already, uh, I don't know. It's probably just silliness. Who yeah, knows? I liked it. And then it was uh, apparently shown in Dragorama in select theaters. Which is very funny. Apparently, there were some theaters that used a mirror ball and colored lighting during the finally dance number, which I think is really funny that uh, that they would have done that. I always saw that. Uh, clearly, I didn't see it in one of those theaters because I always saw that and thought it was just like a joke thing that they put. In the end yeah, there, but like feel around. Apparently not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, how did it do in the box office? Well, after unsuccessfully pitching the concept to the financiers at uh, Con, the producers went to Polygram Entertainment and, with the Australian Film Finance Corporation's assistance, got the film off the ground for a relatively low budget of 2.7 million Australian dollars, which is about 2 million US at the time and about 3.2 million US in today's dollars. The movie was released in the U.S. on August 10th, 1994, then in Australia on September 8th. Very strange that it was released here before Australia, but that's how it worked. In the U.S., it opened opposite Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. There's a pair for you. Uh, the SNL bomb, It's Pat! Camp Nowhere, John Candy's Wagons East, and The Advocate. The movie had a typically a typical limited indie release, but expanded because of its popularity and ended up grossing $11.2 million in the U.S., 12.2 in Australia, and a little bit everywhere else. The movie sits at number 14 highest gross for an Australian feature with an adjusted total gross of about $38 million. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of about 340000 Enough for a new outfit, I'd wager. <laughs> That's very clever. That's a nice, nice outfit. Yes, indeed. Yes. Indeed. 
Well, this was a this was clearly a great way to kick off our uh, our transgender series. Uh, I think it's time to see how the film stacks up uh, stacks up on Flickchart, don't you? Let's do it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Uh, you can actually even just scroll up in your show notes. There it is. There's a link right there. Just tap the flick, flick chart link and you'll be taken straight over to the site where you can add it to your list. And let's see how uh, Priscilla stands up. Oh, by the way, Priscilla's the bus. Well, yes, we didn't mention that. We never mentioned Priscilla that. Priscilla is the bus. For those who wondered, who haven't seen the movie, Priscilla's the bus. There you go. All right, Andy. Take All right, away. first up, we've... We've got a little uh, Aussie battle going on. We've got the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert versus Mad Max. I'm Priscilla here. Yeah, I'm Priscilla. Next up, the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, or just straight out of our last series, Trading Places. I'm going to say Priscilla. I will also say Priscilla. All right. Then we have Priscilla or, this is going to be a hard one to beat, Pete, Aliens. It's aliens, Andy. Who are we kidding? Now, if the aliens aliens. had been in drag, (laughs) that would be a Mel Brooks movie. (laughs) All right, we've got Priscilla or Ennio Morricone and uh, Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone. Good, the bad, and the ugly. Good, the bad, and the ugly, please. Yeah, good, the good, the bad, and the ugly for sure. Priscilla or the thing? Ooh, I think I think you're the thing. Yeah, I think we're gonna be the thing on this. All right, the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, or Sea Biscuit. Sea Biscuit for me. Really, like heavily Sea Biscuit. Yeah, it's way up there on my chart. Way, it's way up there is what movie. you're saying. It's way, way up there. Yeah. All right, I'll tell you what. Here's the deal. We're gonna go to the mat once. If it's a tie or you win, you win. How about that? <laughs> okay. All right, All right, let's do here it. Here you go. One, two. two Three, three paper rock okay it's legit uh, i won anyway there you go all right it's yeah. a legit win it's a legit all right win. priscilla it is uh priscilla or the social network uh i'm the social network on this one i tell you social network is probably the better film priscilla is awfully fun though oh I, I yeah but i'm firmly social network and social network makes me mad but i'm still firm social <laughs> you're still for it yeah. i'm gonna say priscilla all right, Believe let's it do it. Not. Let's do it again. Are, are you going to offer okay. me the same deal? I guess gonna, I you, will. I, you don't have I guess to. I will. It, we'll see who the bigger man is. If you, did, I mean, <laughs> so there's subtext. Wow, wow. I see how that is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three paper. Ah. I legitimately okay. cut you, but you did. <laughs> so am I supposed to give it to you now? now no, you won. Well. you won. You oh, won. Oh, it was if you won or there was if a tie. If it's a tie or if right, I right. won. Right, right. Right. Got me all confused with this thing, all this pressure. It's not rocket surgery, Andy. <laughs> all right. Priscilla or Zodiac? More David Fincher. Jeez. I'm, I'm Priscilla on this one. I, you know, I, Zodiac is a fascinating film to watch, but I am going to yeah. say Priscilla because it's just so stinking fun. Yeah. Even with the long dance numbers. Um, all right. Well, there we are. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert lands at number 67. No on way. Chart. That's wow. a pretty solid start for the series. That's awesome. I'm very excited about that. What does this do for your uh, letterbox ranking? Letterbox.com slash the next reel. 
I ended up going with four stars with this one. I think it's the bit with Cynthia, and uh, you know, that really kind of weighs some of the bits down. But uh, on the whole, I just have so much fun watching this movie. Four stars. I'll give it a four stars as well. Thank you, sir. Look at that. I know. Look that's a that. solid That's a solid film. Well done, Priscilla. Uh, what? Where do we go next? Now, this, this next one I have not seen. Right, yeah, this is the one that you have not checked out. We're going to be uh, checking out Duncan Tucker's 2005 Transamerica with uh, sh- Felicity Huffman and Kevin Zeggers. Now, what should I need? To, what What should I be thinking about when I go into this movie? I I, I don't know. I, I think that. Uh, <laughs> what should I be looking? Exactly what should sure. I be looking for? Bananas. <laughs> you should think about watch bananas for the bananas and hot dogs. <laughs> you like your little boys, girls. Uh, it's a very different film. Very different film. Not funny, um, this right? One, it's it's it, uh, no, it's it not still a, is funny. Is it, it's, it's funny. It is still funny. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, there are some funny moments in it, but it's definitely more of a kind of a comedy drama. Interestingly, also a road trip film. So, I am. Uh, I'm curious to see how this one holds for you. And actually, I'm curious uh, <laughs> to see how it holds up for me after having seen it. I mean, this came out, uh, man, it was uh, 2005. Mm. It was quite a while ago. So um, I'm curious to see how it holds up for me, too. But yeah, I mean, IMDb builds it as an adventure comedy drama. <laughs> so funny. Have you seen uh, The Danish Girl yet? I still haven't. No. There, there, I so badly want to make some sort of a joke about how, oh, yes, it's a road trip movie, too. That would be great. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I'm going to be working on that for next week. Uh, let's see if Excellent. I Looking forward to that. Danish too. Girl Road Trip movie. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Redmayne at the wheel. Uh, okay. Well, that's it, Andy. I, until next week, I think you know I have to go to bed. All right, man. Well, I have been busy working on sizing up my frilled lizard costume, so I'm going to be up for a little while still. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Indeed. Uh, I I have one from Kitty in 2016 uh, who says that the film was uh, was a bit underwhelming. After hearing about the film for years, I have to admit it left me feeling a bit disappointed. I was expecting to be blown away, but it was just okay. The performances of the three leads are good, certainly, but I only really found myself forming a connection with Bernadette. The remaining two queens were likable, but not overly memorable. My main disappointment was that the shows themselves that the girls put on were pretty thoroughly underwhelming. Felicia was the only one to put any real heart into the song and dance, and for the most part, the girls just sort of stood there and swayed a bit. I'm used to drag shows being wholly over the top, so the lack of enthusiasm on stage actually went a long way to dampening my joy in the film. I wanted these moments to be outstanding, and they just didn't deliver. A decent film, certainly but not the excellent experience I was expecting from word of mouth and reputation. As you can imagine, Andrew, I agree with uh, much of that sentiment. For Kitty, it came out to three stars. For me, four, uh, because the rest of the film is is so, so strong. But but I get it. I totally see where she's coming from. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, just, it makes me think that maybe those costumes were just really awkward and difficult to yeah. dance in. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I've got a one star uh, by Sako Sim, who says uh, it wasn't as they described. The description on Prime made it sound like it was about three flamboyant showgirls on a fun farcical misadventure. After violence and several occurrences of the F-word in the first four minutes, I turned it off. The showgirls weren't girls either, which did not bother me, but people ought not to be misled in the description. Prime should be more accurate in its descriptions. Now, I will say I went and looked, and this is the actual description for the show. (laughs) Resplendent in flamboyant ball gowns, looking down over the vast red Australian desert, For three showgirls, it was the dream of a lifetime, a four-week cabaret engagement in Alice Springs. The problem is simply getting there intact, along with their bus, Priscilla. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I have to say. That is terrible. That is not the He's right. right. (laughs) He's totally right. That is a a terrible, terrible description. description. (laughs) Andy, I could not have told you. Had you just read that to me on, let's say, a quiz show type of event, I would not have been able to tell you this. Well, okay. You'd have to leave out the bus Priscilla part. But I wouldn't have been able to tell you the rest of it, what film they were talking about. That's terrible. Pretty funny. It's an interesting uh, oversight that apparently hasn't been fixed fixed uh, on uh, on the website because it still reads that and <laughs> they probably could use a little clarification. Wow, but, that's uh, too funny. It is funny that it only took four minutes uh, because of those several occurrences of the F word and some violence, which <laughs> I don't even remember violence and several occurrences of the F word in the first four minutes. I mean, it's all singing. <laughs> yeah. We're still in. I've never been to me, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That's pretty funny. Well, as always, thanks. Thanks so much, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.